Parnaso. So this afternoon we return to mindfulness of breathing, this time with an emphasis on developing what is widely regarded as really the core of shamatha, shamatha, the word meaning quiescence, tranquility, serenity, calm. So the, the predominant ambience of shamatha in this calm abiding is that the mind abides calmly because the turbulence of obsessive compulsive thinking has subsided. So for this, the attention to the rise and fall of the abdomen can be very grounding, very helpful, especially with that emphasis on the, re- on the release, on the out-breath, just letting all that excess energy out rather than trying to bottle it up with sheer determination. So this practice, I think, is quite familiar by now. So I'd like to leap ahead a little bit and weave some of the later practices in with this one. I was reviewing the teaching, very concise teaching on shamatha focused on the mind by the Penjin Ramachi, the tutor of the fifth Dalai Lama, if you can handle the Tibetan Penjin Losan Chugi Gyanse, where he, in one text, beautiful text, root text on the commentary, unites or integrates the Kagyuba tradition of Mahamudra with the Kadampa tradition, the Galupa tradition, fuses the two. It's a masterpiece. And when he does discuss the practice, the shamatha practice that is specifically designed for Mahamudra, right? Um, in that tradition, the Galupa tradition is called shamatha focused on the mind. But it was interesting as I reviewed my own translations, I should be familiar with it, uh, that when he describes it, he describes it in two different ways. He says, here's one method, and then he says, alternatively, here's another method. And the first method you're largely familiar with, and that is whatever thoughts come up, you simply observe them, don't modify them. So, you've heard that before. But in that same method, he also comments that just rest in your own awareness, be aware of the luminosity, the cognizance, the sheer presence of your own awareness, as you are aware of the thoughts arising and so forth. All right? So, in shamatha literature, the role of mindfulness is often likened to a rope the rope that ties your awareness to the meditative object. Your mind to the meditative object, like tying an elephant, a wild elephant of your mind, to a stake that keeps it firm, keeps it from wandering all over the place. So the stake is your meditative object, the elephant is your mind, and the rope is mindfulness. But of course, mindfulness has to be attached on both ends. And so it actually makes very good sense that as you are mindful of the space of the mind, whatever arises, you're also, so you're mindful of that end of the rope, because you've, in in a way, you've fastened your attention to the space of the mind and the thoughts, images, and so forth arising, right? As you're attending to them, as you're fastened to them, you're also aware of the other end of the rope, which is your awareness of space of the mind, which is your awareness of being aware. So he includes both. Now, the ambience is there, the ambience of just letting it be, whatever thoughts come up, just be present with them, don't alter them, and so forth. So everything else is familiar, but he does explicitly add that component within the context of settling the mind in its natural state. It's not just the space of the mind and whatever rises within it. 
but it's also your awareness of the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, which means it's also an awareness of being aware. So he lays that out. And then he says, alternatively, so within the same very concise presentation of shamatha, he said, well, here, but here's another method. And that is, now we go right back to the awareness of awareness, but he said, whatever thoughts come up, cut them immediately. Just zero tolerance, you know, whatever thought. So you're familiar with that. Awareness of awareness. Any thought comes up, zap it immediately. No interest, right? So as continuously and as non-conceptually as possible, you let your awareness remain right in the flow of awareness of being aware, being aware, being aware, right? So he gives both methods. They're both perfectly viable. And as I review the literature Oh, from Dujum Lingba, Lerap Lingba, and so forth. Nowhere that, that I've seen when describing subtly the mind in its natural state, or as Dujum Lingba says, taking the mind as the path. Nowhere does he say, and don't be aware of being aware. He doesn't say that. So, there's no discrepancy. He doesn't, I haven't seen him say, oh, do specifically be aware of being aware while you're watching thoughts and so forth. Maybe he just let you figure it out for it, figure it out for yourself. Uh, but, but in short, I would say I see no discrepancy whatsoever. I see no difference of opinion or even really explicit difference of methodology. So whether we're following a straight Nyingma approach, Dzogchen approach, or following this Mahamudra approach, combining two traditions, within settling the mind in its natural state, there's certainly nothing wrong with quietly just maintaining that awareness of awareness as you're also aware of whatever is arising to awareness. Specifically, though, since it's not open presence, within the domain of the mind, thoughts, images, and so forth. So, that was helpful to review that, to kind of note that teasing out of the awareness of awareness within the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, which reaffirms an analogy I gave earlier, and that is of the Russian dolls. Right. So today the practice, now it should be old hat, we're going through it for the fourth time, very familiar, like an old slipper. Mindfulness of breathing, rise and fall of the abdomen, I got it. What more do you have to say about this? It's not that difficult. I've always got more to say. And that is, there we are. It's kind of like the outer shell. The outer shell, sensations here at the abdomen. Moving, 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 corresponding to in and out breath. And we are aware of it. So that's where the rope is attached. Right? There we are. And with as much continuity as possible, now we draw from the Buddhist teachings, attending to the whole body, one breathes in, attending to the whole body, one breathes out. Whole body of the in-breath, the whole body of the out-breath. So as continuously, as flowingly, as uninterruptedly as possible, as a full-time job, maintaining the continuity of awareness of the continuity of the flow of sensations correlated with the in and out breath. Right? The object there is the outer shell. Right? Because you're not looking beyond that. You're not looking to the physical sense, that is, the other sense fields and so forth. I mean, that's as far as it goes. Sensations of the breath. End of the line, right? But before you get there, before your mind reaches out and touches, engages with the sensations of the breath, of the abdomen, in between, there's some stuff that arises now. Thoughts, noise, junk, excitation, agitation, memories, images, 
dullness, laxity. They're all, in a manner of speaking, there between where your awareness is and where your object is. Right? They're obscuring the object. Either with noise, junk coming up. It's almost like you, 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 you're trying to listen to the uh, sensations of the breath and you're saying, eh, eh, can't quite hear you. That's a bad connection. Because there's just so much noise coming up in the mind, right? So it's as if it's between you and the sensations of the breath, the tactile sensations of the breath. So we have to be aware of that, of course, and that is what the role of introspection is. We're monitoring, we're aware of the amount of noise, the degree of excitation, the amount of laxity and dullness. So there's the role of, of, of introspection. But that being said, since Penjanamuchi said it's perfectly legitimate to maintain an awareness of awareness while settling the mind in its natural state, certainly it can't be illegitimate or incorrect to maintain a, a, an awareness of awareness while practicing mindfulness of breathing. After all, that's the other end of the rope. So the far end of the rope is fastened to the sensations of the breath at the belly. The rope is, how do you say, obscured, jiggled, jostled, covered over with mud, and so forth, by excitation and laxity. But the near end of the rope is nothing other than, of course, your own awareness. And as the laxity and excitation obscure the meditative object, the far end of the rope, so does the excitation and laxity also obscure the near end of the rope. Awareness itself, if and only if we get caught up in it, if and only if there's cognitive fusion, if and only if there's grasping. If there's no grasping, then we're just resting in that sheer, pure, simple, unobscured luminosity of our, of our own awareness. And then from that clear vantage point, like standing on top of a tall mountain peak with clear blue sky, radiant sun overhead, from that vantage point you can see, ah, dullness has arisen between me and my meditative object. Excitation, wandering thoughts, agitation have arisen between me, that is awareness, and the meditative object. Thank goodness they didn't get inside. So, in other words, for all these practices, mindfulness of breathing in all three phases, settling the mind in its natural state, awareness of awareness, common denominator, common factor, is awareness of awareness. Just resting right there in stillness, relaxed, clear, unmoving. The Buddha, in one of the suttas said, where there's grasping, there is motion. Where there's no grasping, there is no motion. Where there's no grasping, there's liberation. That's nirvana. It's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. We have a sense of being in motion. Oh, my mind is wandering so much. My mind is so agitated. My mind blah, blah, blah. Only because of grasping, right? That old thing that pulses, pulses off center. So this common denominator among all, the, all these three shamatha methods is simply letting awareness rest in its own place, relaxed, so not tightly constricted, pounded in, just relaxed, and it's relaxed because it's free of grasping, it's free of grasping because it's relaxed. And that relaxation, stillness, and the clarity you don't need to add because it is by nature clear. 
be able to rest there. Like, that's your lighthouse. And the lighthouse may illuminate the breath, it may illuminate the mind, the space of the mind. Or the lighthouse may just illuminate itself. But to be able to rest there with some continuity. It goes so much to the very essence of the inner prerequisites, the five inner prerequisites for achieving shamatha. Bear in mind, like Oatisha says, if you haven't fulfilled the prerequisites, if you're practicing shamatha, but without meeting the prerequisites, and those are objective, physical, that is, it can do some environment. We certainly found that's important. But, obviously not enough, there need to be the inner prerequisites as well. So consider them. We'll go through them quickly here, just one by one, five of them. But now let's just go right in upon the center, and that is, while resting in awareness of awareness, just being present there, can you rest there and be content? Is it enough to be aware? Can you be content? Just not doing anything. Just without even saying it. Whoa, I sure am alive. This is a wow, not dead. This is okay. Dead might be okay too, but until that happens, this is this is okay. And this is enough. Be able to rest in awareness of awareness and be content being aware of being aware. That's pretty significant. That's the first one. Second one, having few desires. Really as few as possible. Except for the desire to stay home. Right? Because you're not without desire. You're resting in awareness of awareness because you wish to. You decided to. You made a decision. You're getting through with it. So that's a desire. And you're fulfilling it. Ah, satisfaction. What do they call it? No, no gratif- no delay of gratification. That's what I really love about Dharma generally. There's so many other things. We have to have delayed gratification, right? Are you really looking forward to dinner? Maybe they'll have ice cream tonight. Who knows? Never can tell. Random, yeah. But maybe. Maybe. Ah, I hope acting. But we have to delay gratification. Because you have an obligation to sit here until six o'clock. Unless you have a really good reason, you cannot go. Especially if you come late like Rosa. She deaf. We're going to keep an eye on Rosa. She came in just skin of the teeth. She probably want to slip out quickly for the ice cream. <laughs> So for many things in samsara, so many things in samsara, we have to wait a little while. Maybe wait forever. But dharma, you never have to wait. Really. I mean, somebody mentioned, oh, some problem came up and I couldn't practice. I thought, oh, then you should think about what practice is. You had to wait until the problem was over? What, practice is equivalent to shamatha? Or maybe you went unconscious. If you went unconscious, then you'd have to wait. So really for Dharma, we should, even from these last five weeks, have a pretty clear sense that practice is not equivalent to shamatha. Practice is not equivalent to a method. The only excuse for not practicing Dharma is being unconscious. So when His Holiness had gallbladder, gallbladder removed, he had full anesthesia, knocked out. He's very curious because he's, you know, he's such a scholar, such a contemplative. He's very curious to see whether 
having received the anesthesia, he'd be able to practice, you know, transference of consciousness, that is, be able to lucidly go into the unconscious state, you know, and experience the clear light of sleep and who knows what, you know. Quite, quite curious. He's a very curious man. And so, they gave him the, presumably as an injection, I guess, whatever it was. And he said, hopeless. <laughs> this chemically induced mindlessness, you can't do anything with it at all. It just hits you like a sledgehammer. You go, I'm going to practice Dharma. <laughs> Out. So that's not so useful. So his holiness had a really good excuse for the hours that he was under anesthesia. If he wasn't practicing then, I think we all have to give him a break. You know, just cut him some slack. If you're completely not zotto blotto by general anesthesia, really there's not much you can do. Right? But apart from that, then, then really there's no reason ever to wait to practice Dharma. So there it is, having few desires, having few dunyunjanyo, having few activities and concerns. Well, you certainly have very few. You have kind of no activities, because you're not doing anything, just being aware of being aware. That's two beings, but no doing. So being aware of being aware. So the phrase, be that all, be all that you can be, that's a Buddhist phrase. The army stole it from the Buddhists. Just like the Beatles, let it be, let it be. Oh man, how Buddhist. <laughs> we should have taken out a trademark on that one. Then they would have had to say, try to let it be, try to let it be, try to let it be. But you know, they got the Buddhist phrase, they got let it be. We should, have, we should have trademarked it before they got it. Such a cool phrase. So, no activities, just being few concerns, one concern. I'm going to be aware of being aware. So there's one concern left over. That's three. Maintain pure ethics. Maintain pure ethics. Well, if you're not doing anything, you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> you're not harming anybody. That's good. That's good. Be harmless. And then the final one, Durvala Sovenamba Yonsu Bamba. Andre, doesn't it just roll off the tongue? Durvala Sovenamba Yonsu Bamba. It just, Durvala Sovenamba Yonsu It should be a rock tune. Durvala Sovenamba Yonsu Bamba. Totally abandoned all compulsive thinking of desires and so on. Well, of course, if you're just resting there in a non-conceptual state, you have. So, that's kind of the quintessence of fulfilling all five of the prerequisites, the inner prerequisites. It's just being aware, being aware, having that as your one concern, your one desire, and doing nothing else. There it is. So, common denominator among all the three shamatha methods we're exploring. And it really struck me there's, there are larger ramifications of this as well. And that is, if you're truly content just to be resting in the sheer luminosity of your own awareness and knowing it, knowing it. Then when you emerge from that, that is, well, now why are you going to move? If you're really content, be sitting in a room, or maybe back at home, you're really content just to be sitting quiet and just, oh, like like Dujom Lingba says, when you really go deeply into this, sitting there with non-conceptuality, like an ocean unmoved by waves. So serene, so peaceful. Luminosity, like the breaking of the dawn. Pleasant, nice. And then slowly, slowly, with the union of that non-conceptuality and that clarity, bliss arising like the warmth of a fire. 
So we get shafts of light of each of these three qualities of the substrate consciousness along the path of shamatha. But as you settle in, in deeper, 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 then they start to converge, they start to coalesce, they start to unify. You see, oh, they all came from the same place. And they're really all in the same system. This luminosity, non-conceptuality. That's very easy to be content. Once you've rested there, you don't have to work at it. Very easy to have no desires because you already have what you wanted. Remember, it really may be true that of all, the, all of our desires for things out there, they're all stemming from our desires for either bliss, luminosity, or non-conceptuality. I haven't heard yet of anything that we want from out there that doesn't isn't derivative of what, any one or combination of these three. So if you've hit all three simultaneously, then why on earth would you want to go out for something less than what you already have? That wouldn't make any sense. So one can understand why resting in the substrate consciousness can be such an enormous seduction and potentially such an enormous waste of a life. And so if one comes out, if one having come to this beautiful, not absolute, but relative stillness, this beautiful non-conceptuality, not absolute, but really quite still, and a bliss that is not absolute, but is certainly not stimulus-driven, so it's not as fleeting as all the hypnotic stuff. If you're resting there, then you can imagine. You'd have to have a good reason to come out. Now, if it's just that your body needs fuel and you go to the bathroom, okay, that's a reason, but not a very deep one. But if you have, if you really come out, come out of your cave, out of your retreat place, out into the world, then you'd have a pretty good sense, I think the intuition would be, that if you're coming out into the world, it's not obsessive and it's not compulsive. It's not coming out into the world from a sense of lack, impoverishment, neediness. I'm not happy. Oh, can you make me happy? I'm, I'm not content. Can you make me content? I'm bored. Can you excite me? There would be no reason to do that. Right? So if you came out, you engage with the world, I suspect you'd have a good reason. It would be voluntary. It would be clear. It could be wise. It could also be lucid. That is, when you're venturing out, there will be less delusion than otherwise because you're coming out of a clarity of awareness itself and you'll be experiencing the whole array of appearances around you for what they are. You will see them as appearances of your own mind. So, this is analogous to the much larger picture. I like going back and forth from microcosm to macrocosm. Here's a big macro. And that is until, let's follow this place in the context of the Mahayana path, Oh, by the way, is, is Aiden here? Oh, there you are. Thank you. Good to see you. Um, within the context of Mahayana path, until you're an Arya Bodhisattva, along the path of accumulation, path of preparation, this tremendous maturation that's taking place, when you take birth, when you, your life comes to an end and you're going off to your next birth, passing through the bardo, you are propelled you are propelled. There's, that is, there's a strong wind at your back. If you're a sailing vessel, there's a hurricane at your back. You cannot go backwards. And so it's called, in, in Tibetan, it's called penchikile, propulsive karma. Even for a person who's, you know, a bodhisattva and pretty far along the path, but not yet an Arya bodhisattva, there's a strong wind at your back. Strong wind at your back. And it will propel you. Even if you decide, nah, I think I, I think I'm tired of this, I'm sorry, no thanks, count me out. Whew. 
you know, the hurricane will blow you forward. And so it's rather like being a high, maybe it's a little bit like this, before you're an Arya Bodhisattva. It's like being a hang glider in a hurricane. I think you can, I've never tried it. But I suspect you should be able to, to direct it somewhat, up, down, left, right. You'd have some, some degree, right? Or even being out on a sailing vessel in a hurricane. Well, you can't, you just, you're just not going to go upwind. That's, I think that's just not happening. If the wind is 150 miles an hour, you think, I think I'll just go right against the wind. I think it's not going to happen, right? But let's keep the sailing vessel. Maybe the hind glider is just too flighty. But with a sailing vessel, well, okay, I think I want to go a bit to the port, a little bit to the, okay, a bit to starboard. You'd have some directionality there. So the Bodhisattva passing through the bardo could take this, this great steed plunging ahead or the sailing vessel propelled by the wind behind, and could direct it, for sure. But one choice that can't be made is, uh, I don't want to take birth at all. Thank you. That You can't make that choice. It's happening. Right? Whereas once one is an Arya Bodhisattva, Debaton Pemba Meh, says, once you've seen reality, there is no propulsion, which is to say that from that point on, you're not accumulating any more karma that propels you into future life. But from the time that you're an Arya, Arya Bodhisattva, you really are in the driver's seat. You're really in the driver's seat. And that is, I read this just from His Holiness just a day or two ago, when it's a very recent comment, rather detailed comment he gave, he gave on reincarnation. He said, from that point, your rebirths, once you're an Arya Bodhisattva, your rebirths are really by the power of prayer, of wisdom, of compassion. So it's not just a little bit of steering mechanism and so forth. It's really, you're going where you wish to go. You need to go somewhere but you really are directing your consciousness. Right? So it's been very voluntary. Whereas before you're even, before you're even a bodhisattva at all, when you're just kind of wandering around in samsara, and life comes to an end, then you're propelled. And especially if you're not lucid in the bardo, if you're in the bardo and you don't know you're in the bardo, well, you have a, a, about as, as much, about as much freedom in a non-lucid bardo towards choosing your next rebirth as you have in a non-lucid dream. So consider the dreams you've had, your non-lucid dreams you've had. If yours are at all like mine, you're massively a creature of habit. Massively. Number one, you're fundamentally deluded. You not only don't know what's happening, but you radically got it wrong. And then as one emotional situation, one crisis, one challenge arises after another, pretty much... You're just cruising on the sheer force of your habitual propensities of habit. Not much in the way of freedom. Because you're deluded. It's hard to be free and deluded at the same time. They're kind of incompatible. So likewise in a non-lucid bardo, well, if you're just an ordinary being and you're cruising for the bardo, pretty much the habits you've been accumulating in your past life and lives, they'll propel you right on through. So from that perspective... The whole of samsara until you're an Arya Bodhisattva is one great big macrocosmic obsessive compulsive delusional disorder. Yeah. It's obsessive. You don't really have any choice about stopping. It's compulsive. You're totally caught up. You're fused. When you're in the body, you're totally immersed in it. You don't know you're there. So it's totally just one cognitive fusion after another, all bound up by grasping. And it's delusional because you never really figure out what's going on at any time. 
in the bardo, you don't think you're in the bardo. When you're in the waking state, you think all of this is objectively real. When you're deep sleep, then you just don't know anything. So you go from not knowing anything to getting, to get, to getting everything wrong. And so that's, those are your two big options as a deluded sentient being. Either not knowing anything in deep sleep, or being in a non-lucid dream or non-lucid waking state. Either way, you got it wrong. That's no wonder the, you know, the great bodhisattvas feel such compassion for us. It's like no win. There's no win. It's all just rooted in ignorance and delusion. So, coming back to awareness of awareness and how we lose it. That is, you can taste it. I think all of you have tasted it. And that is, what's it like just to be present and to know it? To be resting in awareness and be aware of being aware. There's something simple but something real about that. Something not insane about that. Right? And then, as we found so often, we lose it. We're abducted, we're carried away by some rumination, some non-lucid thought. And even when we snap out of it, or we continue with the thought, but lucidly, right? you can be in a non-lucid thought, and then something triggers us, and we become aware that we're caught in a stream of thought, but now we're in that stream of thought lucidly. We know that the thought is taking place, right? But even once you become lucid in a stream of thought, can you remember when the non-lucid stream began? I don't think so. Because you weren't aware that it, you weren't aware when it began, that's why it's called a wandering thought. So you can't remember something, you can't remember something you never knew in the first place. So you start out in ignorance, in not knowing, in a wandering thought that captivated you into rumination, OCDD. At some point, you wake up from it. You know exactly when you woke up. That's easy to find. You know when you first woke up. Something clicked. Ah, that's when I became lucid. Good. When did you become non-lucid? Can't remember. I wasn't there. And likewise, in a, in a non-lucid dream becoming lucid. Someone has recounted to me a very interesting lucid dream just a day or two ago. And it was immensely vivid, incredibly vivid. He tried to do a state check to see whether, by checking something, whether it would seem as real as in the waking state. And it was. So that didn't work. Just trying to see, you know, whether the dream is, is, is can be as real as this, where you can... You know, you can touch the individual strands of the fabric with cushions of, oh, this must be, this must be real. It's so, so realistic. Yeah. A really clear dream will have all that realism. But in this particular case, the person happily did one of our state checks and jumped straight up and wound up hovering. That's kind of a giveaway. If you hover. Hover, just, oh, levitation. Like, oh. Maybe this is a dream. Very vivid. Right? So at that point, the person beca- became lucid. So you know exactly when the lucidity began. When I jumped up and I didn't come crashing down, I kind of, ooh, like that, oh, I'm, this is a dream. You know when the lucidity began. But even from that perspective, if you think now, but when did this dream begin? Exactly what was the first moment of this dream before I became lucid? Bet you can't find it. You can't remember what you never knew in the first place. And it said even the Buddhas, now we go macrocosmic, even the Buddhas who are now awake. Are you a man? Are you a blah, blah, blah? No, I am awake. 
even a Buddha who is awake, states from the perspective of a Buddha, did your samsara, when did your samsara begin? Buddha Shakyamuni, full-fledged, 32 major, 80 minor marks, Buddha, total, absolute, Lomakoi. Lomakoi means authentic Buddha. Ask the Buddha, when did your samsara begin? Do you remember? Because you've got now unbounded, right? Boundless consciousness. It said even Theravada. Theravada has the most modest interpretation of what the scope of the Buddha's mind is. Different schools have different interpretations. Theravada is the most modest. Theravada says wherever the Buddha directs his attention, that becomes illuminated. So in the Theravada view, the Buddha does not have a 360 degree, 10 directions and three times simultaneous awareness of everything. Not in the, not in the Theravada view. But Theravada view does say, if the Buddha directs his attention to something, why exactly does Nico have this, that particular hairline? You know, a lot of men do kind of like two moons coming up at a point. Why exactly that? Because not every, like Eric doesn't have that. And what Mark has, who knows? You know. <laughs> the moon has gone over the horizon, right? But why do you have that hairline? Why do you have a heavier beard than me? You know? What's the karma for that? So the Buddha could just direct his attention to it and it would come right up. Right? But if you ask the same Buddha, when did your samsara begin? When was your first life? No comprende. <laughs> you know, even the Buddha has to say, the Buddha very really says, gosh, I don't know. But that's what a Buddha have to say. Doesn't come up. You can't remember what you never saw in the first place. So from, even from the Buddha's perspective, the Buddha's own samsara doesn't have a beginning. Right? But the Buddha's awakening has, the Buddha's awakening does have a beginning. It's commemorated every year for the last 25, 2600 years. That has a beginning. So the awakening has a beginning. Which means, if awakening has a beginning, delusion has an end. But delusion doesn't have a beginning because you weren't there. Right? So we're now into the third, that is the, the final three weeks. Bear in mind the final three days. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we take off Saturday morning. We'll have breakfast and ramus. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they're talk days. It's time to transition out, network, do whatever you wish. So we'll still meditate. I'm going to be meditating a lot. But meals will be talking and so forth, you know, as much as you wish. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which means we have a little bit more than two weeks of silence. Right? And so some people already anticipating, not unrealistically, um, life after Phuket, life outside of the mind center. I love the name of this place. Once you've left the center of your mind, <laughs> what's that going to be like? And I don't think anybody yet has had the, had the courage or the foolishness to tell me during one of our weekly interviews, Alan, well, when I leave here and go back to the real world, none of you stride on him yet. <laughs> back to the real world. Your relatives may be waiting for you to come back to the real world. But what's so real about it? Compared to being present in awareness and really knowing that you are aware in this universe, here's one thing that is true. Knowing, being aware. It's one thing that's true. Indubitably true. Then you come from that and then you're caught up in the Phuket airport trying to get your bag checked. 
wondering whether you filled out the papers. Why didn't you fill out the departure cord card? Did you lose it? Did you did you lose that other piece of slip of paper they put in? Did you lose that? You mustn't lose that. You'll have to spend the rest of your life in Phuket Airport if you don't have it. That's, they have a whole room back there. People just they're stuck there in limbo. It's called Phuket Airport limbo. It's terrible. I think I'm joking. Yeah. Oh. But then you're caught up in an episode of getting through customs in the Phuket Airport. And then finding your seat in the airplane and getting your luggage stored. And then there'll be another episode. And there'll be another episode. And you'll be caught up in one of them after another. And they'll be finding your baggage and hoping they didn't lose it on the way back. And maybe they did. And maybe you'll never see that piece of luggage again. And hoping somebody will meet you at the airport, but they might not. And so you go from one episode to another. And they'll all pass. And then you come to the end of your life, whether it's one year after you get home or whether it's 50 years after you come home, and all the experiences you've had from the Phuket airport until the end of your life, will you know then when you're on your deathbed whether you dreamed it or whether it was real? And will it make any difference? Sandadeva points this out. Once the experience is already gone, what's the difference between a memory of something in the waking state and a memory of a dream from your perspective? Not much. They just come and go. And then they're forgotten. Most of them are forgotten anyway. Almost all the dreams we have are forgotten. Almost all the days of our lives are forgotten. Where were you on April 19th, 1995? And what were you doing? <laughs> so, how real? How real? One way of judging how real, not whether real or whether unreal, how real, one way of judging would be how long does it last? For example, in physics, they speak of virtual particles, particles that emerge from the zero-point energy of the vacuum, and they just like big soup of energy. And particles, they do this in high-energy physics all the time. They get a whole lot of energy coming up, and then a particle will come out, but a very, very brief duration. It's a virtual particle. It just kind of comes out of the soup, and then it's gone. So quick. It just kind of peeks its head up above the surface, and then it's gone. It doesn't hang out. You know? So virtual particles, all these really high-energy particles. Or particles, these virtual particles just coming out of the soup of the zero-point energy of the vacuum. These virtual particles, they're called virtual because they're so fleeting. I mean, they're, just, they're hardly there. By the time you're aware, they're already gone. Whereas other particles you know, last a lot longer. So they're not called virtual. They're called particles. <laughs> yeah. So in one way, we think something that lasts a long time is more real than something that's very fleeting. Something that has a lot of connections, a lot of connections, would seem to be having a bit more reality, more substance, more significance, more reality than something that is fairly isolated and irrelevant, like a little virtual particle goes and gone, not much ripple, right? 
So if something gets interconnected with, influences a lot of things, interfaces with a lot of things, that would seem to be a bit more real than something that has hardly any interaction with anything. And then duration versus brevity seem to make it a bit more real. Well, the one common strand between being here and being someplace else four weeks from now Moloch is your body turning over. Certainly there will be some carrying over, but they're all fizzy, fizzy, and then especially brain cells, you're kissing them goodbye on a regular basis. But one the constant strand, one constant strand is that mental awareness. That mental awareness. That carries through all the way through. And more, moreover, interfaces with every experience you have. Every visual experience, mental awareness is there also. Right? So it's deeply connected deeply connected. And that's just within the framework of one lifetime, that continual mental consciousness. That's the keeper. You may go blind, you may go deaf, you may get general anesthesia, but the mental consciousness that carries through. Carries through. And it's interconnected with every experience you have. Right? But then death comes to an end. Then death comes. There's a termination of this life. I've been really quite surprised by how many friends of mine, even in Dharma, look at that question and kind of shrug nonchalantly. Like, eh, whatever. You know, if there's continuity, if there's continuity, if there's not continuity, if there's not continuity. Either way, you know, be good, be here, be now. Be a good person. doesn't really matter. If you're a good person, you'll be here, be here now. Then that'll be good for the future life, good for this life. So why, why worry about it? I mean, you can't really know. You know, it's either terminated, it's not, you know, but either way, you know, whatever. So I, I know, I know some Dharma teachers come like, well, why bother with that stuff? You know, it doesn't really matter. I couldn't disagree more passionately. Because if it's true, something's true. That's, that's, I mean, I think, I, I'll say with absolute confidence, something's true, something happens. And it's kind of binary. Either consciousness terminates or it doesn't. I don't see, kind of like being pregnant. I don't think you can be kind of quasi, you know, pregnant, not pregnant, conscious, no consciousness. So something happens. It's terminated or it's not terminated. If it is terminated, and that's it, no more, end of story. People remember you until they forget. And then there's nothing. If that's the case, then everything that is of value to us personally, is directly related to and dependent upon what in Buddhism is called the appearances of this life. The only thing of value, if you are terminated at death, the only thing of value is everything that happens before termination to you personally. Right? Because it can't be of any value to you beyond you. I mean, it would be nice to make a good imprint on the world, but in terms of your own self-interest, your own personal well-being, there is nothing, if there's, if you terminate at death, then everything of value for you as an individual, for your well-being, terminates at death. That means everything of value is prior to this death. Prior to that death. That's it. In other words, that is of ultimate value for yourself. What happens prior to. If death is simply a transition, and there's a continuity, and the continuity of experience thereafter, and moreover, if it never ends, then what happens in an infinite future after this life is infinitely more important 
than what is the value during the finite years of this life. I mean, the mathematics is pretty strong. So what could be more different than what follows this life is of zero value, zero significance for your own personal well-being, to having infinite significance? Zero and infinity seems like a pretty big difference to me. So people that shrug that off, I think they're just, I think they just don't want to face that reality and face the uncertainty of it. Let alone face the possibility that maybe we don't need to be uncertain or even more face the possibility or face the reality that for us not to be, not to be, to transcend our uncertainty would take some really valiant, concerted, penetrating effort to come to the truth of the matter so you know it for yourself. And that's going to take a major sacrifice. You can't just maintain your present lifestyle and, every, and your priorities and everything and say, oh, by the way, yeah, and about five years from now I'm going to figure out what happens at death. I don't think that works that way. You know? If you're going to, if you're going to as Lama Zubarimachi said, it's not enough to believe in reincarnation, you have to know it. That's going to take some real work. You have to roll up your sleeves on that one. You can have a belief, that's pretty easy. But to actually know what happens at the, at the point of death prior to it happening, the Buddhist tradition says emphatically that can be known, but it's not cheap. It's not won easily. But it can be won. It takes major investment. But to know that one point, that death is simply a transition. I was just translating this day in one text that I've been translating. Detailed instructions on how to, how to make that transition and make it most meaningful. Very clear. Really, really clear. What to expect. If that's true, then, frankly, that changes everything in terms of our view of what happens this side of death, and it changes everything on what happens on the other side of death, and it changes entirely our whole notion of what, what it means to die. So is there any common denominator, any accessible reality, that is, to which we have access now, oh, and then I'm going to stop, to which we have access now, that could shed light on the whole continuity of our lives, that would be a common honor, that would be the common stream of what happens throughout our lives, and could also shed light on what happens at death, and also shed light on what happens after death, like in the bardo, and also shed light on whatever might come in the next embodiment, and on and on until eventual, hopefully, Enlightenment, is there any common denominator that could illuminate all of those aspects? Yeah. Awareness of awareness. That illuminates the one common denominator. Throughout the whole course of life, through sleeping, through deep sleep, because you can become lucid in deep sleep, through the dying process, through the post-death experience, through the bardo, into the next embodiment, on on to enlightenment, and up to and including enlightenment, the one common denominator is mental awareness. So the materialists would have us believe that there is, is no mind without a body, without this body. And the Buddha said, oh boy, if you could have gotten it any wronger, it would have been amazing. Because you just got that absolutely and flamboyantly wrong. There would be no body where there not a mind. From your perspective, if from your perspective, if you had none of the five physical senses, no visual perception, no auditory, no tactile, no gustatory or olfactory, if you had none of the five physical senses, from your perspective, 
in what meaningful way could you possibly say, I've got a body? Because you have no experience of it whatsoever. So why say you have something of which you are utterly, absolutely unaware? That doesn't make any sense. Other people might say, oh, that person is comatose, that person is vegetative. But then why talk about a person? All you're seeing is a body. So from your perspective, no body without the five physical senses. And where do they come from? They all stem from mental awareness. So without mental awareness, there's no body. That's straight from Dujanimba. Without mental awareness, there is no body. Mental awareness does not depend upon the body. It is that which makes the body possible. And all of our experience of the body withdraws into mental awareness every time we fall asleep and every time we die. So if we have any wormhole, any access to that which is eternal in our own existence, it is that awareness of awareness. It points right to the substrate consciousness, and if you keep on pointing deeper, it goes right to Ritva. It's the common denominator. So let's come back to our simple practice of calming the mind, mindfulness of breathing, but introduce this feature as well, awareness of awareness in the midst of it. stemming from this awareness of awareness. Settle your experience of the body illuminated by awareness in its natural state. Your respiration illuminated by awareness in its natural rhythm. Your mind illuminated by awareness. In a state of equilibrium, poised between relaxation and clarity, sustained with stillness.
and direct your attention like an arrow, striking the target of the sensations of the breath at the abdomen with each inhalation and exhalation. Arousing with each in-breath, relaxing and letting go of all thoughts with every out-breath. And while maintaining the continuity of this mindful engagement with the sensations of the breath, introspectively monitor the space of the mind, its dullness or clarity, its stillness or agitation. Apply the remedies as you balance your attention. But don't leave home. Let your awareness rest in its own place, illuminating the sensations of the breath. But without losing awareness of its own presence. That stillness, the clarity, the conceptual silence and the ongoing flow of your own awareness. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
So let's weave this, this little practice of mindfulness of the sensations of breathing with the larger picture. It won't take long. And that is in this process we just completed. There is something about which we are being informed. Some object knowing. Sensations of the breath. There's also the ongoing flow of knowing them. That ongoing continuity of mindfulness. Which can be clouded by laxity dullness, can be agitated, or even thrown off course by excitation, agitation. So there's an ongoing flow of knowing. And then there is, there is an awareness. There is a knowing. There is, there is an agent. There is, there is someone, as there is an object of knowing, there's also someone who knows. And so those three, someone who's being informed, if I asked you, did, were you breathing for the whole 24 minutes? I think you would be able to say yes or no. So somebody was there, right? So there's an agent. There's a process of knowing, and then there is that which is known. But the one who knows the breath wouldn't exist unless there was the knowing of it. You can't just know the, be a knower of the breath without having any knowing taking place. There would be no knowing if there were no one who knew, and there would be no knowing of the breath if there were no breath, sensations of the breath. So these three, the object, the process of knowing, and that which knows, they're mutually interdependent. Take away one and the other two aren't there anymore. Right? So, a flow very similar to what John Weeder was talking about, a flow of information which requires something about which one is informed, you know something, the process of being informed and the one who is informed. And out of that continuum emerges the multiple worlds of mind and matter, space-time, mass, energy, and so forth. So he called this a strange loop, and that is it's it's not the case, absolutely and linearly, linear, linearly, that there is a physical world, physical evolution, and then because of that, then there is information and there are observers. But rather because there is information and someone who knows the information, the observer, therefore the observer conceives, conjures up, formulates the world of mind and matter, out of that flow of information. So it's good physics. But we see that macrocosmically, and we see it, seeing it right here. On the one hand, of course it's true that if you start damaging the brain, or just, let's say, the eyes, visual visual perception is one aspect of having a human mind. If you damage anything from the retina all the way back to the visual cortex, right? you can lose your sight. And so then you have, you know, you're just taking one notch out of human mind, Visual perception. Oh, here's a person, but he's blind. And then damage anything from the eardrum back into the auditory cortex. You can go deaf. And so clearly, just by well-placed damage to the brain, you can you can cut off one sense faculty after another. You know, approaching general anesthesia. And then, of course, you can start doing some major damage to the frontal cortex. And so your memory ability, your emotions, ability to think rationally, use language, problem solving, and so forth. Boy, that well-placed mallet can, you know, knock out the coarse mind together until you just have somebody who's vegetated and say, what what part of this person's mind is human? No mental activity, take no, men, no, no human mental activity taking place. The brain is too damaged. And no sensory activity taking place. Maybe all the senses are damaged. 
And so in that regard then one can say that the human mind, the human mind with its human, human five physical senses is dependent upon the body, the nervous system, and especially the brain. Damage it enough, it doesn't happen anymore. So that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, if there were no continuum of consciousness, that flow of consciousness, from which, out of which, human mind emerged independence upon the brain, out of which emerged the five sense, sense modalities, there would be no body, from a first-person perspective. And if nobody else is looking on from outside, there would be no body from a third-person perspective either. So that's one more case, but now a microcosmic case, of a strange loop. And that is, on the one hand, the human mind arises independence upon the body. On the other hand, everything we know about the body arises independence upon the subtle continuum of consciousness out of which emerge all of the appearances of the body. Without that continuum, there's no body. Without the body, there's no human mind that's conjured up. So it's a strange loop. Yeah, interesting. Olaso, much more interesting than materialism. I think materialism may throw out just because it's boring. That's a good enough reason. Ola, so here's, here's a question. Which, which are the scientific and Buddhist explanations about our need to sleep and dream, apart from just resting the body, and why someone who has achieved shamatha still needs to sleep, considering that this person has perfectly balanced mind? Well, of course, it's not a perfectly balanced mind. There's nothing perfect about shamatha at all. There's nothing absolute about it. <coughs> it's blissful, but it's not immutable bliss. It's luminous but it's not the luminosity of Rikpa, and it's non-conceptual, but not completely. So there's nothing perfect about it. It's really, I have to say, a very fine state, an exceptional state of sanity, but nothing perfect about it, because there's nothing perfect about the substrate consciousness, and that's where you've come to. still has murmurings of conceptuality, still grasping is there, and so forth. Um, How much people need to sleep once, or want to sleep, are inclined to sleep once they've achieved shamatha. Uh, I, sus- I strongly suspect that depends on various factors. Number one, uh, how physically active are they? How mentally active are they? If you've achieved shamatha and then you are living, you know, really dynamic, like a lifestyle like His Holiness Dalai Lama, I mean, really, such an incredibly intense life, you know, pace of life. So many people to meet and Dharma talks to give and one thing after another, and keeping up the world events, and so forth and so on. So, when there are many demands on the time, even if your mind is very, very balanced with shamatha, still, there's fatigue factor that would set in, right? Um, but overall, uh, if one has achieved shamatha, then the need for sleep would be much, much diminished. And then how much you would need would probably depend on just how much energy you're, you're exerting, expending throughout the course of the day. If you're spending, really, your, your day in meditation, then you might not need any at all. I mean, there's Gawagendan Dupa, one of the two disciples of Tsongkhapa, didn't sleep at all. Uh, Lama Zubarambuche, I've heard multiple people say he doesn't sleep at all. He's alive. Uh, I mean, if you're dead, then you don't need to sleep, but that's a different deal. Lama Zubarambuche, oh, there was Gen uh, Asam. When I was up there in 1980 with the yogis up above Dramzala, there was one, one Geshe, never saw him. I never saw him. I was up there, lived there for five months until my visa ran out. Never saw him. As, we never saw him. But they said, <clears throat> he doesn't even have a bed, only a meditation box. He slumps over sometimes. That's it. Yeah. Hardly any need for sleep at all. So that varies a lot. 
Um, I am, one would really need to check with a, a medical doctor, a neurologist, brain scientist, and so forth, psychologist. Um, I mean, there's a whole field, of course, sleep and dream research. Stanford was, maybe still is, one of the best in the world. When I was there at Stanford, it was Chicago, in the United States, Chicago and Stanford were the two best places. Uh, William Dement was in charge of sleeping and dreaming research, and Stephen LeBaire studied under him. So they would have a lot to say about, apart from the sheer revitalization of the body, I, I keep on reading articles that come up about it. They all seem a little bit tentative. I mean, one of the things they say, well, why do we dream? You know, why do we dream? Uh, and as well, maybe it's for assimilation, collation of, of data to make sense. Uh, learning process continues in dreaming. Why do we need deep sleep? I see very well-informed and intelligent speculations from the scientific side. And some of them may be true. I wouldn't be at all surprised. These are very intelligent people giving a lot of serious thought to something that is rather mysterious. Um, but I've not seen kind of like, okay, here's, we found, we found out. Now we got it all clear. This is why we dream. This is why we're not lucid. This is why, you know, we have deep sleep. This is why we have five to seven cycles of dreaming per night. Um, <clears throat> I don't think there's definitive scientific knowledge. I think a lot of very well informed speculation. Um, and from the Buddhist sense, from the Buddhist side, I think it goes very deep, uh, beyond my reckoning. Uh, for example, waking consciousness correlated with Nirmanakaya. Dreaming consciousness correlated with Sambhogakaya. Dreamless sleep corresponding to, especially lucid dreamless sleep, corresponding to Dhammakaya. Waking state corresponding to being alive. The clear light of death corresponding to dead. Bardo corresponding to dream state. You know? Parallels and parallels. I mean, par just hall of mirrors, parallels, microcosm, microcosm, on the path, on the fruition, and so forth. So, I can't give an answer. I can't give an answer. Oh, yeah, here's the right answer. I remember reading it in a book once. This is exactly why we need to have deep sleep. This is why we have dreaming sleep. Um, I think it's somewhat mysterious. But it does get interesting. I think the most interesting context that I've seen, and I really can't give much more, uh, <clears throat> is the presentations on the six bardos. On the six bardos. And how the bardo of waking, the bardo of dying, the bardo of the dhammata, the bardo of becoming, and so forth. There's six of them, bardo of dreaming, of course. How each of these can be a platform for enlightenment. So each one provides us with a unique opportunity. And <clears throat> people vary. People vary in terms of their capacity, their temperament, their proclivities, um, karma. And so for some people, the, you know, the living the transitional process of living may be where the, the big show takes place. You know, they're really doing it while alive and achieve enlightenment right while they're alive and they're doing it by shamatha, vipassana, dzogchen or state of completion, generation and so forth. So the big show may be transitional process of living and these people like Gawagin and Dupa, the first, the first Dalai Lama, disciple of Tsongkhapa, he just didn't sleep at all, don't need it. No, not needed. I'm one of those transitional processes of living people. And that was his vehicle. You know? Songa by himself, it said that he achieved enlightenment um, by way of Sambhogakai in the Bardo. You know? 
Um, so some people in the bardo of dharmata, ultimate reality. Some people in the dharma in the bardo of becoming, transitional process of becoming. Some people, presumably, I don't know of one right off the top of my head, but some people presumably would achieve achieve enlightenment from the springboard, from the launching pad of dreaming. In which case, like that yogi that I mentioned earlier up in Shimla, uh, he would just spend as much time sleeping as he possibly could, because that was his that was his platform, you know, whenever possible. So I don't think I can say anything more than that. Uh, it would be then, practically speaking, we see well where your where your native abilities. Uh, I've you know I've, I've met a lot of people over the decades, and some people just have a natural ability for lucid dreaming. Number one, people like Stephen LeBaire, some of them had a bunch of lucid dreams when they were kids. And then hit puberty, they usually lose it. But if they had that proclivity as children, as Stephen LeBaire's did, and really quite a few children do, then, it's like blowing off, you know, blowing the dust off, he was able to retrieve it relatively easy. And then, just during his doctoral research, you know, that would be a few years, had a, like a thousand lucid dreams. It just basically on call, he could have at least one every night, sometimes two or three. And so he was gifted in that way, like that. Other people, just not so gifted there, but, you know, in other ways. So I think it's, it's looking for one's strengths and going with those, and then being happy that we have such, we have six multiple opportunities, you know, for progressing along the path. Okay? Now, any quick ones during a couple of minutes? Yes, Danny. <coughs> I was wondering whether all sensual beings share the same ripa. In all those, so many references, I've done a fair amount of translating now of Dzogchen literature. So often it's a rang ripa, rangi ripa, rangmo, rangshel, your own awareness, your own nature, seeing your own face. Right? Um, so if there were just one great big soup, you know, like generic, like collective, collective rikpa, an ocean of rikpa, then I think you, then they probably choose different terminology. Because it's not, I mean, I live, when I'm living there, in Santa Barbara, and our house looks over the Pacific Ocean. But I never refer to it, to it as my ocean. You know, I've got a perfectly good view of it. I have a unique view of it from my house. But I would never really think of calling it my ocean, or let alone my sky. But they do have this phrase, Rangrik, Rangshel, Rangunzaba, or Motoba, identifying your own face, identifying your own Rikpa. So that would suggest that they mean it, right? It comes up so frequently, right? On the one hand, on the other hand, and this was a short question, and does, it actually does get a short answer. Uh, when dealing with Rikpa, it said, Rikpa said to have, uh, to be free of the eight extremes of conceptual elaboration. Eight extremes of conceptual elaboration. I've seen two sets, they vary just slightly. But one that's common to both sets is that, um, in Tibetan, and that is Rikpa, number one, it transcends all conceptual constructs. There's nothing you can think about Rikpa that you say, oh, I got it with that one. There's no hook. Like if Rikpa were a fish, there's no hook that would catch it. right? And so 
one of the, or let's say two of the eight extremes, conceptual polarities, or which simply does not attach to Rikpa. Rikpa always eludes it, eternally eludes it, is it's neither one nor many. It's neither one, chiktantate, it's neither one nor is it different. So your Rikpa and my Rikpa. When you realize Rikpa, you'll realize your Rikpa, not somebody else's. When I realize Rikpa, I will realize my Rikpa, not somebody else's. But now the Rikpa that I realize and the Rikpa that you realize, are they one or are they different? And that's exactly the question that is a categorical error. You can ask it if you like, but there will be no right answer to that one, except that does not compute. Does not compute. So, the good news is that the nature of Rigpa can be known. It's not bad news, but the challenging news is that it can only be known by itself. And not the dualistic conceptual mind. It can't even be known by substrate consciousness. Rikpa, everything about Rikpa can be known, but only by knowing itself. Hola, so. Mendo. Mendo. I imagine so. Enjoy your evening.